This is a Federal News Network podcast. Agencies now have extensive instructions from the Biden administration on improving diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility within the federal workforce. The president signed a new executive order last week. It runs more than 5,000 words. The order has a little bit of everything. It addresses unpaid internships, pay in the federal government, training, opportunities, ex-convicts, even agency literature and gender pronouns. Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco joins me now to walk us through this new order. And Nicole, walk us through some of the high-level points here. So, Tom, I think the best place to start with this order, and it is quite extensive, is the agency or government-wide, I should say, review of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility within the federal workforce. And so President Biden has asked the Office of Personnel Management and Office of Management and Budget, as well as the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, to review potential barriers within the federal hiring, promotion, training, and pay systems, uh, specifically for underserved populations. And The executive order spells out, you know, who exactly the Biden administration believes or considers underserved populations. And in my mind, this is potentially what is specifically new about this executive order, at least compared to past diversity and inclusion initiatives, is just the scope of this. And so the White House says, you know, this includes people of color, women, first generation professionals and immigrants, individuals with disabilities, LGBTQ plus individuals. Americans who live in rural areas, older Americans who face age discrimination when seeking employment, parents and caregivers who face employment barriers, people of faith who require religious accommodations at work, individuals who were formerly incarcerated, and veterans and military spouses. So that's quite a long list there. And so the order goes on to describe how agencies should review kind of the state of equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility inside their federal workplaces and embed some of these practices within their management agendas and their human resources practices. Sure. And we should point out, too, that it says the Secretary of Defense shall take actions to promote equitable health care coverage and services for LGBTQ plus members of the uniformed services. So there is nobody that's getting a federal paycheck in any way, shape or form that is outside of this. Yeah, that's right. And we can get to some of the specifics for the LGBTQ plus population. You know, OPM has some requirements there as well, especially when it comes to the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program. But you're right. Everyone's covered under this. What else did you find in there that struck you as, hey, this is a little bit of new ground that we're on here? So besides, you know, the call for a government wide plan, agency plans, which is something that the Obama administration did back in 2011. It's very clear that the Biden administration has taken inspiration from that 2011 order. But, you know, for me, what's what's different about this is a couple of things. So one, I think, is the emphasis on data and evidence in promoting and I'll just use the acronym here, DEIA initiatives within federal agencies. So, you know, for one thing, the order asks agencies to measure demographic representation inside their organizations and track trends actually within, you know, who's applying for federal jobs, how hiring decisions are made, attrition, uh, the composition of the senior leader workforce, which we know is a problem within federal agencies. I think The government at large might be reasonably diverse, but the senior leadership ranks, I think, still struggle to attract and retain a diverse population there. And for me, the data initiative is interesting because, you know, I've taken a look at some of the data myself and it's not especially comprehensive. And it's, you know, the 
uh, dashboard itself, FedScope, is pretty clunky. And so if this order, um, you know, gives some more visibility into the demographic representation across the federal workforce, it could be a good thing. The other thing that I think is interesting about this is, you know, I, I was struck by the mention of federal internships and what the Biden administration wants to do there. Specifically, they say to agencies, look, you need to reduce the reliance on unpaid internships, which I, I'll be honest, I wasn't sure that that was still a thing within the federal government, but it is. And we know that agencies actually really struggle with interns at large. They're not drawing on that program very much. You know, the number of interns they have on board has dropped by thousands over the last year. And so that was another thing that stood out to me. And then one final thing I'll mention, Tom, and we can go into more of this, of course, is a mention of pay equity and asking the Office of Personnel Management to look at the pay system within the federal government and come to some come to some conclusions about whether or not it's equitable for all populations of federal employees and potentially make suggestions there. I think as we've reported time and again, changes to the federal pay system are quite difficult. And so it'll be interesting to see what OPM comes back with there, I think. And I also was struck by the the emphasis on partnerships and recruitment, almost in the same way that the Census Bureau regularly reaches out to institutions close to various communities that it wants to make sure participate fully in the Census Bureau. This has the Office of the Director of Science and Technology Policy, OSTP, and OPM and OMB and the EEOC coordinate a government-wide initiative to strengthen partnerships with people close to different racial groups tribal communities, and so on, and uh, making sure that they're in knowledge with respect to federal recruiting and possible hiring. Yeah, and I think that particular point, that's something that I often hear individual agencies say, well, you know, we're reaching out to minority-serving institutions and historically Black colleges with some of our job announcements, but I think putting it in an executive order and trying to institutionalize it through this new partnership program that the executive order envisions is certainly new and is something we haven't necessarily seen before. Now, this is not the first executive order by an administration of this type, but nevertheless, this one strikes you as taking a step further than what came before? I think so, at least just based on the sheer scope of the executive order. And I'll say, you know, we haven't necessarily seen too, too many executive orders or policies directed specifically at LGBTQ plus employees. And you mentioned a couple of the specifics earlier. I'll just mention a few others. The order directs agencies to look at their hiring and benefits enrollment forms and make sure that those include non-binary gender marker and pronoun options. It even has the Office of the Director of National Intelligence review potential barriers within the security clearance process for LGBTQ plus employees. So, I mean, there's a whole host of things there. And then one other thing I'll mention, of course, is the diversity and inclusion training, which last year was, you know, a little controversial when the Trump administration banned certain kinds of DNI training and effectively paused most of those programs, at least for a short period of time until the Biden administration ultimately rescinded that executive order. The training is back on, but I think this is notable here. Such training programs should enable federal employees, managers, and leaders to have knowledge of systemic and institutional racism and bias against underserved communities, be supported in building skill sets to promote respectful and inclusive workplaces, and eliminate workplace harassment, 
have knowledge of agency accessibility practices, and have an increased understanding of implicit and unconscious bias. So certainly that's a different direction than I think the previous administration took. And it's pretty clear how the Biden administration wants things to move forward. And this could also cause some technical work for agencies. One of the provisions here says they want to ensure that federal employees have their respective gender identities accurately reflected and identified in the workplace. That means that, I mean, you go online a lot of places now, they ask you male, female, or I'd rather not say. Some sites have 50 different options under gender. Somehow the government is going to have to thread that needle so that ID systems, I guess CAC cards and ID cards and so forth, are going to have to reflect what it is people want themselves to be described as. Yeah, NIST has a requirement here in this executive order to do just that. And so we go back to takeaways from this executive order, what might be different about this one compared to others. And again, it's just the number of agencies that are involved in this. I mean, we would expect someone like OPM to play a big role in diversity and inclusion initiatives. But I think this particular order really gets everyone involved. Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration And he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? 
you know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned 
and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees and, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick. Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.